All right, let's continue to listen. To borrow on short notice to make the first trip. And I got to thinking now, I remembered something, that when I had been working at the Reader's Digest, one day at a kind of social gathering there, among the people present had been Mrs. DeWitt Wallace, the co-founder, or one of the two co-founders with her husband, Mr. Wallace, and Mrs. Wallace had commended me for an article I had written. It was one of the unforgettable characters, which I had written about an old cook under whom I had worked in the Coast Guard. His name was Scotty, an old sea dog type. And when she finished commending me, as she was leaving, she just had said to me, if I can ever be of help to you, let me know. And I'd never forgotten that. <laughs> and now I sat down. And I wrote a rather embarrassed letter to Mrs. Wallace, explaining as best I could what was obviously a nebulous thing, the hope that maybe I might be able to make some connection in Africa, based on a story told in West Tennessee in boyhood. It sounded so nebulous I was really embarrassed to send the letter. But as it turned out, Mrs. Wallace did remember, and she got in touch with some of the editors at the Reader's Digest, and they got hold of me, and I was asked to come up, and I did go. And at lunch, I was supposed to talk an hour about my idea. I talked nonstop for about three hours. It just poured out of me. And I never will forget that afternoon, those editors said to me, we will gamble with you, or we will gamble on you. And they agreed that the Reader's Digest would support my travel expenses and give me a stipend per month for a year to see what could I do in the course of that year. And thus, I went back to the Gambia. The same men with whom I had previously talked told me matter-of-factly that there was now found in a backcountry village an old Rio knowledgeable of the Kinte clan story. When I heard that, I was ready to have a fit. Where is he? And they said, he's in his village. And I would have expected here's an American magazine writer they'd have had him there with a PR man for me to talk to. But I discovered now if I was to see him, I was going to have to do something I had never dreamed would fall my lot, and that was get together a kind of modified safari. It took me three days to rent a launch to get up river, a lorry, and Land Rover to get supplies by a roundabout land route there, and finally to hire a total of 14 people, three interpreters, one each expert in the Wolof, the Jola, and the Mandinka tongues. They said we'd meet in different places along the way. Four musicians, because they told me in the back country these old men would not talk without music in the background. And, and bearers and so forth. And we headed up the Gambia River on the morning, vibrating in a little launch called the Badaboo. And we now head on as our destination, this village called Jufere, and we got to a village called El Brida, and there we set shore, went ashore, and then by and on foot, we were headed toward that village, Jufere, where it was said this old man, the griot, lived. When we got to that village, near it, the little children, playing on the perimeter of the village, gave the alert. And the people came hustling out of the village. It's a very small village. 
only about 70 people. And as they rushed toward me, I had entered into something that is described as the peak experience. It is that which emotionally one experiences that nothing ever in the rest of your life can transcend. And I feel certain that is what was my experience that morning in that village. When the people came, I saw among them a short man, compelled, an off-white robe, a pillbox hat. And when they got closer, the interpreters with me, sure enough, went to him. And meanwhile, the 70-odd people of this little village came rushing toward me. They came quickly, curiously around me. They were around me in sort of in a horseshoe design. And I held up my arms at full length. I would have touched the nearest ones on either side. And they were about three, four deep all around. And the first thing that got to me was the intensity of how they were staring at me. The eyes just raked from head to foot. The foreheads were furrowed in the intensity of their staring. And I felt very, very discomforted being stared at as if I was a thing or something. And the first thing that got to me was I began to have now another feeling. It was also in me, and yet it seemed a part. It was visceral, as if my inserts were going to churn around or something. I felt almost nauseous. And I remember standing up there thinking to myself, what in the world is the matter with you? And what came to me was that I had been in crowds lots of times in my life. But for the first time in my life, I was in a crowd and I was the only one of my complexion which might be said to be brown. Everybody else I was looking at was jet black. And emotionally, that thing hit me like a thunderbolt. I, to this day, don't know the components of why I felt as I did. And you know, it's sort of like body English. If we are insecure, uncertain, whatnot, we tend to drop our glances. And I dropped mine. And without having intended to do so, I found myself looking, almost studying my own hands, the color of my hands, inside, outside, and naturally, involuntarily it's in contrast with their complexions and this time it didn't take so much time I had this rolling wave of a feeling come over me it was just terrible awful I felt hybrid I felt impure among the pure and it was just awful I remember standing there being rocked by that when the old man left the interpreters and briskly walked away at which point all the people around me quickly left me and went to the old man. One of the interpreters, his name was Salah, came up and spoke quickly, whispering sort of in my ear. And what he said rocked me as much as the rest when I understood the import of it. He said, why they stare at you so, they have never in this place seen a black American. And I suddenly realized they were not looking at me as Alex Haley, writer, individual, as I tend to think of myself. But they were seeing me through their eyes as the symbol of the 25 plus millions of us black people in this country whom they had never seen. And it was just awesome to realize that someone had imputed to you that enormity of symbolism. Well, I was standing there kind of rocked by that when just sort of adjacent were now all these people, 70 odd of them, clustered around this old man. And they were darting glances at me and there was intense conversation in Mandinka, and although I couldn't understand a syllable of it, 
Yet in some way there's a universal language of gestures, nuances, inflection. And somehow I knew exactly what they were talking about. I knew they were trying to arrive at how did they feel collectively about me symbolizing to them all we black people in this country whom they never had seen. And there came a point when the old man turned and quickly as was his way, he walked right through the people. He walked right up to me, stood maybe a yard from me, his eyes piercing into mine, and he spoke in Mandinka as if he felt I instinctively ought to understand it, which of course I couldn't, and the translation came from the side. And once I understood the import of that translation, or the words, I made a vow to myself that once I get this book and the film and everything all settled down pretty well, I am going to see these words put in some appropriate permanent location somewhere along the southern coast of this United States and along the western coast of Africa. The way that they decided they felt about me symbolizing to them all we black people in this country whom they never had seen. And the translation was, quote, Yes, we have been told by the forefathers that there are many of us from this place who are in exile in that place called America and in other places. And that was the way they felt about it. The old man, the griot, his name was Keba Kanga Fofana. He had <laughs> 73 reigns, their way of saying 73 years of age, one reign a season a year. He began now to tell me the history of the Kente clan. I should tell you that one of the most awesome things I have since come to try and deal with was that if, and this particular if ought to be in letters six feet high because it is so rarely possible because of intervening occurrences, nonetheless, if any black person in this auditorium, any black person in this country only could know a few vital clues, if he or she only could know what was the original African name of the forefather the foreparents brought out of Africa, if he or she only could know when were they brought out and from where were they brought out, that to this day it is not impossible that the contemporary black American might be put in touch with a wizened old griot somewhere in backcountry black West Africa who could tell the contemporary black American literally the ancestral clan from which he or she sprang if they could know those clues. I was there, blessed to know the things I had gotten through a series of miracles, which had begun on a West Tennessee front porch from my grandmother and other elder relatives. And now I was about to hear the story of the Kinte clan, because I had been able to say, as had been the case, that my forefather in this country always had insisted his name was Kinte. I should tell you that when a griot begins to speak, it's a neo-religious occasion within a village. The people get in a wide semicircle. Their posture is something kind of like parade rest. The griot sits. He comes forward. As he begins to speak, he bends forward. His torso is rigid. The cords stand out in his neck. He speaks, and the words are almost as if a scroll is being read. He would say two or three sentences, and the interpretation or translation would come to me. When I had heard a good fair amount of it, 
I was absolutely awed, immersed in just wonder that such could be, that out of this man's memory and his mouth was coming such an incredible array of lineage. All the way across a family line a hundred odd years ago, who married whom? What children in what order? All the way across that line, then drop back down to the children themselves, each child whom they had married, their children in what order, all the way across. I was struck by the biblical way it was being expressed in the translations, and so-and-so took as a wife so-and-so, and begot, and begot, and begot. And every now and then when he would name some begot or other, he would tell some little thing about that person which had happened later in life. I can strip out of the hours I was to hear that day into a few minutes. The history that I was to hear of the Kinte clan, and I again remind that the counterpart of this history exists this day is somewhere in backcountry black West Africa for every single black American there is. If he or she only could know the clues and only could be put in touch with the right griot. He said that the Kente clan had been begun in the country called Old Mali. The men preponderantly were blacksmiths. The women were mostly potters and weavers. A branch of that clan had moved into the country called Mauritania. And it was out of Mauritania that one son of that clan, his name Kariba Kunta Kente, had come. He was a young marabou which is to say a holy man of the Muslim faith. The people of that section, as I've said, historically were predominantly Muslim of faith. Kariba Kunta Kinti, as a young marabou, moved down into the long, narrow country called the Gambia. He stopped first in a village called Pakalinding, and then he went to a village called Jifarong, and he went next to a village called Jufaray. The village of Jufaray took his first wife, a Mandinka maiden whose name was Cyrene. And by Cyrene, he begot two sons whose names were Jane and Salome. Then, Muslim man, plural marriages, he took a second wife, her name Yesa. And by Yesa, he begot a son whose name was Omaro. The three sons grew up there in the village of Jufaray. And when they came of age, the elder two, Jane and Saloum, went away and founded a new village called Kinte Kunda Jane Yar. And then the youngest of them, Omaro, stayed there until he had 30 reigns, 30 years of age. Then he took a wife. Her name was Binta Keba. And by Binta Keba, within the decade that we in our calendar system would call roughly between 1750 and 1760, Omaro Kinte begot four sons, who in the orders of their arrival were named Kuta, Lamin, Suwadu, and Madi. The old man had been talking for about in excess of two hours when he got down to that level of the family. Then as he had stopped, I would suppose, 50 times it would seem, in the course of that time to tell some little tangential thing about some individual, some begot or other. He stopped now and he spoke, and the translation came from the side. And I heard in disbelief, it began 
about the time the king's soldiers came. And I interject to tell you that's one of those time-fixing references which griot storytellers use to fix events. They use events to fix dates. And if you would know the event, you must find the date. But anyway, here in backcountry Black West Africa, hearing the ancestral story of the Kinte clan told because I had been able to come saying my forefather had always insisted that was his name. Now I heard this wizened old griot say through the interpreter, quote, about the time the king's soldiers came, the eldest of these four sons, Kulta, went away from this village to chop wood, and he was never seen again. And he went on with his story. Well, I sat there as if I was carved of rock. Goose pimples that felt to be the size of grapes all over me. There was no way in the world for that man to know what he had said to me. It was with physical effort that I got my hand into my duffel bag and got out my little notebooks. The first book, the early part of it, was devoted to a kind of a synthesis of what Grandma and Aunt Liz and Cousin Georgia and Aunt Vine and all of them had said. And I showed it to the interpreter, Salah, and I watched as he read and he began to perceive the meaning of it. And he got very agitated. He went to the old man, talking very rapidly, explaining to him. The old man, after a point, all but grabbed the book, jabbing his finger at his pages, talking very rapidly to the people, explaining the significance that I had come from a place where my forebear on this side had been one who always said his name was Kente, who had always said he was not far from his village, chopping wood with the intent to make a drum when he had been surprised, set upon, captured into slavery. I remember I had been sitting on a little three-legged stool with a cowhide top, and I just felt like helium had been pumped into me. I popped up like a jack-in-the-box, just stood up. I don't remember anyone giving an order. I just remember subsequently becoming aware that those people, the 70-odd of them, had formed a circle, a ring around me. They were sort of dancing, it might be said, of kind of hitching progress dance, counterclockwise, the movements kind of like drum majors to high knee action. They were chanting something, their voices alternately loud and soft. And I'm standing there in the middle of them, feeling like an atom in the desert. How could you feel? I felt wiped out. I remember I happened to be looking right toward the face of one of the about 12 ladies in that moving circle, who had little infants over their back the way they carry them in those claws, as this lady with a fierce scowl on this shinola black face broke from the circle, charging in toward me, her bare feet knocking up little puffs of dust, and when she got to me, she took her infant and all but thrust it at me, the gesture saying, take it, and I took it, and I clasped it the way we instinctively do babies. And as soon as I had it clasped pretty good, she all but snatched it away from me. And there stood another lady with her baby. And it went on. I suppose it took about two minutes for me to hug all those babies. I would be back in this country, speaking at Harvard University, and a very famous scholar in this country, Dr. Jerome Bruner, who knows of such things, said later to me, you were participating in, and you did not know it, one of the oldest ceremonies of humankind called the laying on of hands, that in their way they were saying to you, through this flesh, which is us, 
we are you and you are us. And there were many, many other things that were going to happen that day in that village, almost too emotional to try and deal with. One I remember was the men took me to their mosque. I didn't know what to do. I'm Methodist, they are Muslim, and I was trying to be careful to do the right thing, watching out of the corner of my eye. You take off your shoes to go in there, you're down on your knees. And I remember down there on my knees feeling so forlorn and lost and thinking, I found out where I've come from, I don't even understand what they're saying. They were praying around me in this high nasal wailing Arabic. And later when we came out, the crux of what they were praying was translated for me. It was praise be to Allah for one lost long from us whom God has returned. And things just went on till it got to the fact that emotionally I could not handle anymore. I told them I wanted, if I could, to go out by land. We had come by water up the river, and it turned out it was long enough after the rainy season. It could be arranged. And I was going out now. It was set up. I would go out with a driver in a land rover. Back country, black West Africa. The monkeys, the incredible foliage, the green parrots that streak around screaming at you. Just backcountry sight sounds that I'd never had any idea about because just cannot describe Africa unless you've been there. And as we were going along, there was also in my mind a great turmoil. They began to come in my head as we might have a dream, as when we sleep. A rough, ragged, newsreel type of thing. It was as if all that I had read by now about the ways that Africans had been brought out of Africa seemed to be enacted. I began to see the way that along in the coastal areas, as had been the case with Kunta, mostly they were people who were kidnapped because they were close to the coast. But further back inland, I began to see the way that by far most of the slaves were captured, come screaming awake at night with the thatched roofs of their homes falling in on them, a fire, a flame, the thatch was in flames, and they would rush out into the bedlam, into the carnage, and those who survived it in any kind of fit shape were captured as prisoners, linked neck to neck with thongs into what were called coffles. If you do much reading in this, you will run into that word coffles, C-O-F-F-L-E-S. It is said that some Coffles of slaves were as much as a mile in length. And they were. I'm going to stop it right there. I'm going to start back in just a second.